of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. I was on staff at Esquire magazine for a few years. And I think when you are on staff at a website that publishes pop culture content, you are encouraged to come up with ideas that will get people angry or uh, excited or agitated or upset. Like you are encouraged to come up with headlines that sound like this, that like, Pottersville is cooler than Bedford's Falls. <laughs> um, these sort of, you know, radical notions that what if you're looking at this film that you love in the complete wrong way, they generate clicks and add money and, and uh, will put you up the totem pole. Because who wants to click on a, on a yet another essay that says It's a Wonderful Life is a Great Movie when you can click on an essay that says like, wait a second, actually this movie you were watching, you were watching it the wrong way all this time. Can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? And dance by the light of the moon. You're staying there. 
So far in this podcast series, I've informed you that you live in a part of the multiverse where George Bailey was never born. And you met a town once similar to Bedford Falls in your universe. One that has developed without the benefit of George's presence. Kind of like uh, Pottersville. But your universe is not entirely without George. Thanks to the movie Wonderful Life, George's story made it to you anyway. And we angels have always felt that if you ever lost your way, this movie might serve you all well. Uh, If you ever stood at your own fork in the road. As a kind of bridge between universes. The problem, it turns out, is that the meaning of George's story is far more open to interpretation than we ever thought. Pottersville, you know, from a modern lens, doesn't look all that bad. You heard Dom Nero at the beginning. An article he wrote recently joined what has become a wave of alternative takes on Wonderful Life. Even though his tongue was firmly planted in his cheek, things that we create often take on a life of their own. And I want to, you know, put the big caveat that, of course, like, I can tell that, you know, Mr. Potter is a very obvious kind of Donald Trump sort of figure, that he uh, is like this this conqueror kind of type who who preys on the uh, underprivileged. That That is just so obvious. Like, of course, I, I know that and I accept that. Um, so a lot of this essay that I wrote is kind of tongue-in-cheek, and my editors at the time saw this one and said, oh, my God, that's so funny, you should write it. So <laughs> I wrote it. You've been given a great gift, George, a chance to see what the world would be like without you. Wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Oh, this is some sort of a funny dream I'm having. So long, Mister. I'm going home. Home? What home? Now shut up! Cut it out! You all remember, don't you, when we showed George another universe where he'd never been born? Without him to defend it, he saw that Potter had run roughshod over Bedford Falls, transforming it into a place based on his own values, Pottersville. Well, in your universe, without George, a similar realization has been slowly dawning on many, particularly since the start of the 2000s, as upside-down takes on wonderful life, some humorous, some not, but nearly all rather a little cynical, have become a frequent annual occurrence in your media. The movie hasn't changed, So perhaps you should ask yourselves what this says about how you all and your values have. That's what we'll look at in this episode. You must mean two other trees. You had me worried. One of the oldest trees in Pottersville. Pottersville? Why, you mean Bedford Falls? I mean Pottersville. Don't think I know where I live? What's the matter with you? You know, I've been kicking this It's a Wonderful Life story around in my head almost since I saw it. The alternate reality in It's a Wonderful Life was the better reality. And the reality was actually the terrifying one. And it's actually a horror movie. This is Wendell Jameson, a journalist with the New York Times. I first saw the movie at uh, Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn. So it was in 1981 in December. Uh, We had just finished work on the play the weekend before. 
and it's kind of a a gift to the people in the play. Mr. Elman invited us to all stick around and watch a movie one day after school. This was his favorite movie, and he wanted to give us all a treat. It was a, a very gray, wintry, but not snowy day, not a beautiful day, just a dark December evening in a public school next to a train trestle. I was in a band, I had dyed black hair, I was really into the jam and Elvis Costello. We walked into the room and there was a projector and and we were sitting on those metal back chairs and one of his student assistants made us some popcorn and he started It's a Wonderful Life. What I remember, because I was so riveted, was the darkness of the movie. Like that was one dark movie and maybe Mr. Elman was showing it to us because he is a fun holiday treat but I shivered Uh, and both of the realities of the movie are terrifying right the reality of and remember we were high school students beginning our lives we were in plays we imagined we were going to be rock stars and and movie stars and uh you know to see a movie where somebody is slowly beaten down by life and sees all his dreams crushed uh, was kind of a scary thought. And then, of course, then the next reality is the upside down reality. And that town, it looks fun. I mean, that looks like a, that is a happening street. Now, I'm taking you to late 2008, inside the fourth floor of the New York Times skyscraper in Midtown Manhattan. Lehman Brothers is going to saturated the U.S. housing market. A housing bubble. But like every bubble, the bubble ended. That sunk former giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Billion dollars in losses. It was a scary time um, and a dark time. And the reason for the darkness was the financial industry. And it just felt like the story that I'd been cogitating about in the back of my mind for years about It's a Wonderful Life now was the moment to do it, uh, you know, that you had the literal hook of the financial industry collapsing. Dwight, Uncle Billy, uh, Uncle Billy, oh. come in here. Oh, we stopped at the bank first. December 24, 8,000. Oh, good morning, Mr. Bailey. Good morning, Horace. Uh, I guess you forgot something. Huh? You forgot something. Well, aren't you going to make a deposit? Oh, sure, sure I am. <laughs> well, then it's usually customary to bring the money with you. Huh. Oh, shucks. <laughs> I hear my hat. Hi. Mr. Glenn's office. Hi, good afternoon. This is Wendell Jamison calling. I'm trying to reach uh, District Attorney John Flynn, please. Will you just give me one moment? Sure. Hello. Hi, Mr. District Attorney. Wendell Jamison from the New York Times here. How are you? Good, Wendell. How are you doing? Good, good, good. So I explained to you in my email uh, what we were going to talk about, that I'm sort of doing a sort of a postmodern deconstructive look at It's a Wonderful Life and trying to turn some of the premises of the movie upside down. Uh, you know, everyone thinks of it as a cheery holiday movie, but I think of it a little, a little bit more like a horror movie sometimes. Not that I don't love upstate and western New York, of course, but one, the question that I wanted to bounce off you was just the, this idea at the end of the movie where he's accused of stealing uh, the money from the bank and all the townspeople rally together and give him, and so they can pay the money back. And then it's a very happy ending. But 
that wouldn't really be true, right? He does, if I rob a bank, all I have to do is give the money back and I walk away scot-free? No, absolutely not. It's, uh, it, it clearly, that's not the way it works. So the, if, in fact, a like in the movie, an arrest warrant was issued, the Bedford Falls Police Department, you know, right. um, w- w- would have filed uh, larceny charges uh, against George Bailey. They then would have got a judge to sign a warrant for his arrest. Oh, oh Mr. Bank Examiner. Mr. Bailey, there's a deficit. I know, $8,000. George, I've got a little paper. I'll bet it's a warrant for my arrest. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. Merry Christmas. Reporters, where's Mary? Mary, oh, look at this wonderful old drafty house. Mary! If you remember in the movie there, you know, the, the, you know one of the law enforcement personnel had the, had the arrest warrant in his hand, um, you know, and then they tore it up there and threw it in the big bin with all the, with, you know, with, with, with the collection of money there. You, you can't do that, obviously. <laughs> you, you, I mean, if at the end of the day, the either the police or, you know, the local district attorney's office, district attorney, wanted to dismiss the charges, which they could do, obviously, all right? You got to go in a court um, and tell the judge, you know, Your Honor, we're dismissing the charges. Um, and at that point, you can tear the paperwork up. But obviously, you can't, you can't do that in the living room of George Bailey's house. <laughs> right. Certainly, him returning the money or somebody returning the money will help him with the judge. Yeah, by by paying it back, you, you might get a reduction in, the, in you know a, a plea bargain in the charge, uh, or um, uh, you know you, you might get me to say to the judge as a prosecutor, you know, Your Honor, he paid the money back, um, and you know I'm not, I'm recommending no jail time, give him probation. So it would go towards sentencing, and it would go toward a potential plea bargain as well. You don't think a crime was even committed here by George Bailey. Now, he doesn't know, of course, what happened to that money at that time. He doesn't know that old man Potter stole it. But Correct. You're, Correct. How could you possibly prove that he, he somehow nefariously stole it, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, again, you know, the, 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 the premise uh, and, and the burden isn't on – the defendant here, George Bailey, to, to, to show that, to show whatever, okay, the, the burden of proof is on me as a DA. So uh, me as a DA, I have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he intended to deprive another person, or in this case, the bank, a third person, a, you know, a third-party entity here, okay, um, uh, th- 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 this money, okay? You know, th- there's no proof that, that he had the intent to steal uh, or to, to embezzle or, 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 or to take this money. There's no intent here that I can prove as a DA that he stole the money. So, I mean, again, I don't know, I don't know who would ever, I don't know what judge would ever sign that arrest warrant, uh, or, or I don't know any DA who would ever put, put forth a file charges to get that arrest warrant signed. So, in my opinion, the facts clearly show there was no theft here at all. Unless the judge and the DA and everyone else is in Potter's pocket. But uh, I guess that's true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole nother story. Absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much. This is going to be add a new level to my story. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Mr. District Attorney. Wendell's article was headlined, Wonderful? Sorry, George. It's a pitiful, dreadful life. In it, he also argued that Bedford Falls would have done better under Potter's vision. Uh, something we'll explore in a future episode. 
To his great surprise, the piece got one of the biggest responses of his career. Six o'clock the night before the story was supposed to come out, I went to the my computer and I looked at the homepage on the most emailed list, and my story was like number four. And I didn't even know it had published yet. And then it was number one in a second. And it went crazy. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Prudential knows that no community is a monolith, and we all have unique financial needs. With black community partners across the nation, Prudential has a remarkable history of supporting communities and institutions that have been overlooked for far too long and are making a tangible impact. This includes their home city of Newark, where they're actively engaged in building stronger financial foundations. They are dedicated to offering equitable financial services that cater to diverse individual requirements while recognizing our shared goal of wealth building. For instance, they've pledged a staggering $1 billion to programs, partners, and initiatives focused on historically excluded communities. It's not just about dreaming anymore. It's about turning those dreams into reality by creating blueprints for generational wealth. Power the dreams of our communities today and future generations tomorrow. Learn more and build your financial blueprint today at prudential.com blueprints. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Now I'm taking you backwards in time to a December seven years earlier, late 2001. 
On America's other coast, in the city of San Francisco, we are inside the headquarters of Salon Media. If Wendell Jameson is the popularizer of alternative takes on Wonderful Life, then Salon.com co-founder Gary Camilla might be seen as the phenomenon's godfather. And it's another dark time, as Gary witnesses like most on his television. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was- There is one last objection that can be leveled against Pottersville. Its name. Gary Camilla, reading from the attention-grabbing piece he felt compelled to write that difficult December, headlined, All Hail Pottersville. Yes, Pottersville does reek of Donald Trump-like vulgarity. But is that such a bad thing? Being named after a ruthless captain of industry casts a long Ayn Randian shadow over a city, giving tacit permission to its inhabitants to pursue their pleasures in the enveloping moral darkness. If there was a town named Caligula City in the late Roman Empire, it probably slammed. Pottersville is a, you know, a place of complete alienation and selfishness and hatred and and depravity and everything. But but it nonetheless is, you know, opens the door to if you're somebody that likes to go out to bars, its bars are a lot better looking than the ones in in Bedford Falls. So uh, that was, you know, that was the place that I was coming from. But that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, I prefer a world where Potter won, even though that is, in fact, what happened. And in the real world, Potter won. Unchecked capitalism uh, did win. Um, that you know, obviously there are victories for the George Bailey's of the world, but it's not the way that modern post-industrial capitalism has generally worked out. It's gone the other way. You know, I'm a big bar guy. I love nightlife. I like, uh, I like, uh, you know, just hanging out in alcoholic dens of iniquity, urban, urban dives, um, of all kinds. I've always loved that. Um, I'm watching this film, which I adore. And, uh, all of a sudden we're in the, the counterfactual universe where we've, you know, Bedford Falls is gone thanks to the machinations of Clarence. And now we have uh, Pottersville and there's the, the street scenes or just a minute or two seeing all those clubs, the Indian club and the blue moon, you know, whatever, all these different clubs. And, uh, you know, there's you see this black piano player playing honky tonk and there's this kind of Lauren Bacall like woman and all these dudes in fedoras. And it's like, man, this is great. <laughs> I love this. And I remember just thinking that and then realizing, you know, oh, no, but then we're supposed to think this is like unbelievably awful. This is. And so there was just this real obvious, big, huge meatball for, for me as a writer where, you know, you're you're being told, no, this is bad, but everything in you was like, no, this is good. Um, but then, you know, there's a little kick in the very end of the piece uh, when I, you know, say, look, okay, I've made a definitive case that, you know, Pottersville is better, but the real, but don't forget at the end of the day, 
There's no use in even resisting this because in the real world, Pottersville won that the George Bailey's of the world are going to triumph over the Potters and that they're going to save the savings and loans from, uh, you know, these consolidators and and hyper capitalists is a complete crock because Potter won, not George Bailey. As to whether or not Capra saw it in those terms, that strikes me as far more problematic. I mean, not even the most diehard Trump supporter um, is going to be watching It's a Wonderful Life and rooting against George Bailey. Uh, the, the Trump supporters want to believe the same Capra mythology that Capra himself is prom- promoting. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen talks freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Meet Tom Mullen today. Like many others, this writer and podcaster has been more than happy to follow Gary and Wendell's lead, Subverting Wonderful Life, and take it further than either imagined. And he is not joking. We're not told much about how Potter got to be where he is, right? Of course, the same thing with Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. How did he get so rich? Well, he got so rich by making good financial decisions. And and to the extent that he's a financier, that means he directed capital to things that were profitable, which didn't go bust. So he benefited the community by giving them things. What, what we don't know houses. He has his rental houses, but he also has uh, other financial interests as far as we know. And to the extent that he's directed capital to things that are are built in the town, everyone benefits from that. It's without Potter that you'd see Pottersville the way they depict it Uh, without George Bailey, you know, (laughs) uh, things might be better without him misdirecting capital and, and just wasting it and making people now don't forget those people that bailed him out twice same people had to bail him out twice they had their own dreams they had their own happiness they were unable to pursue because they had to spend money bailing out their their buddy uh uh bailey there who conned them twice so everything's a trade-off there is no basement full of money just remember this mr potter that this rabble you're talking about They do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. George Bailey's father, Peter Bailey, I believe, dies. And then there's a scene, a board meeting of the building and loan. And there's Potter sitting in a chair saying we ought to close it down. Um, And then George Bailey goes off on this left wing rant, you know, with all of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's talking points about what a bad guy he is. And if you notice in that scene... Potter's not interested in that. He keeps redirecting the meeting. What's good for the building alone and what's good for the town? Is this thing actually serving the town of Bedford Falls? Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building alone. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about. I know. It was directed by an anti-New Deal Republican named Frank Capra, but who didn't mind working with communist writers. And the two people who wrote uh, It's a Wonderful Life were communists. Uh, Not a totally fair description, but we'll get into that in a moment. So, of course, they want to 
they want to portray uh, any a capitalist as somebody evil who's looking to um, acquire wealth at the expense of others. But even in telling that story, they can't help but let the truth come out. And the truth is that that uh, old man Potter has been a great benefit to the community or he would have lost the money he invested. The very first lesson we learn uh, in economics and the history of economics, at least according to Adam Smith, is that people acting in their own self-interest do far more good for society than people um, you know, trying to do good for society. So who are the two people in this that we're talking about? The selfish uh, old man Potter and the do-gooder George Bailey. And uh, who has done more for Bedford Falls? I don't think that there's any argument there. George, I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. You know just as well as I do that I run practically everything in this town, but the Bailey Building alone. You know also that for a number of years I've been trying to get control of it or kill it, but I haven't been able to do it. You have been stopping me. In fact, you have beaten me, George. And as anyone in this county can tell you, that takes some doing. Even after the Depression, where, where Potter tries to recruit him, he says, Take during the Depression, for instance. You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. You saved the building alone. I saved all the rest. George Bailey says, Yes, well, most people say you stole all the rest. And he says, The envious ones say that, George. The suckers. Well, he's right. I mean, okay, if should he have let them go bankrupt? Where was somebody else to come in there and save everything else? Only Potter, because only Potter has run his businesses honestly. You know, George Bailey goes off on this melodramatic suicide drama and imagines all kinds of things like angels and everything to try and justify his very shady financial past and why none of this is his fault. You know, that's another thing that you get from these wall street guys, uh, the, the wall street welfare guys. Uh, it's not their fault. You know, it's not never their fault when it's time to pay, you know, but it's, it's, but they get the credit when, you know, uh, when the profits are rolling in. So, um, yeah, I don't like George Bailey at all. I, I think it's very chilling and dark at the end where he suggests that, uh, you know, his, his shady financial dealings have divine sanction when the bell rings on the tree and he says it's an angel getting his wings for another. He's got divine bailout now, right? First is first. Well, not only do, does he get bailed out by his customers in the depression, now they're bailing him out again for the eight grand and God is bailing him out. Supposedly um, it's just, uh, this is not a person we should admire. The war of ideas has only just begun. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Well, I can tell you that while upside-down interpretations of Wonderful Life started in the 1980s and grew prominently over the 2000s and up to today, a few go all the way back when the movie was still playing in theaters. And wait till I tell you who came up with the first. Richard Hood, FBI's special agent for the Los Angeles office, sits at his desk typing a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, the famous head of the FBI. It's 1947. Federal Bureau of Investigation, United States Department of Justice. 
Los Angeles, 13, California, 7th August, 1947. Communist infiltration into the motion picture industry. With regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life, stated in substance that the film represented a rather obvious attempt to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. Related that if he had made this picture portraying the banker, he would have shown this individual to have been following the rules as laid down by the state bank examiners in connection with making loans. In addition, stated that, in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters. I had been asked by a colleague at Wellesley University to review some microfilm, as I understand the story, and the FBI accidentally sent him all this stuff on Hollywood. And he knew I'd worked on the FBI, so I was asked to review it. You're hearing John Noakes, an investigator into the FBI's history of interventions into activist movements. In the mid-1990s, he receives a batch of microfilm and is among the first to lay his eyes on 50-year-old memos between the Bureau's Los Angeles office and J. Edgar Hoover. He's gobsmacked by what he reads. If you were to ask the random person, is this a subversive movie? They're going to look at you cross-eyed. I mean, of course not, right? And Hoover originally says, you know, you can do this, but only on movies that we know are subversive. Which, by the way, It's a Wonderful Life is on that list. When George Bailey's father joins us up here, George hesitantly appears before a meeting of the board members of his father's building and loan, who must decide the fate of the business. Minority shareholder Potter uses the opportunity to deride his old foe Peter Bailey's uh, altruism on behalf of working people. And indeed working people themselves. And George gets rather uh, fired up. You know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? The speech where he talks about, you know, trying to save the savings and loans and became the centerpiece of the research in many ways because it's, it's what the FBI decided was evidence of subversion because he's extolling the common man. And I, there's a quote in the... One of the FBI files where he where they say, basically, there's nothing common or little about an American. After the end of World War II, heading into the Cold War, when United States and Russia go from allies to foes, um, and in the building of the Cold War, you see, a, you see a very strong ideological effort separating ourselves from, from those beliefs and practices that might have challenged capitalism. Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. And it's it's pretty clear that Hoover is a conservative anti-communist who believes that communists will do anything they can to subvert the American way of life. So his concern about the movies is just one version of this. And wouldn't you know it, Wonderful Life makes it onto Hoover's official subversive movies list. A little-known fact, this list and the criteria used to create it was primarily developed for the FBI by an outside consultant based in Hollywood. 
And here's where I get to the first upside-down interpreter of Wonderful Life I mentioned earlier. A woman whose name you no doubt know. Ayn Rand. A Russian who fled to the United States after her country's takeover by communists and uh, took it personally. As she writes mostly romantic comedies for Hollywood to fund her real passion, novels that will launch an influential American philosophy seen by many at the time as extreme pro-business, pro-selfishness, pro-anything-goes capitalism. When you advocate completely unregulated economic life in which every man works for his own profit, you are asking, in a sense, for a a devil-take-the-hindmost, dog-eat-dog society, and one of the main reasons for the growth of government controls was to fight the robber barons, to fight laissez-faire, in which the very people whom you admire the most, the the hard-headed industrialists, the successful men, uh, perverted the use of their power. Is that not true? No, it isn't. Uh, This country was made not by robber barons, but by independent men, by industries who succeeded on sheer ability. Three years after the initial release of Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart's close friend Gary Cooper, the actor, plays Ayn Rand's iconic architect hero, Howard Rourke. Rourke's courtroom speech, which might be seen as a kind of answer to George Bailey's, raises the individual over the community. He held his truth above all things and against all men. He went ahead, whether others agreed with him or not, with his integrity as his only banner. He served nothing and no one. He lived for himself. And only by living for himself was he able to achieve the things which are the glory of mankind. Such is the nature of achievement. Man cannot survive except through his mind. He comes on earth unarmed. His brain is his only weapon. But the mind is an attribute of the individual. There is no such thing as a collective brain. The man who thinks must think and act on his own. The reasoning mind cannot work under any form of compulsion. It cannot be subordinated to the needs, opinions, or wishes of others. It is not an object of sacrifice. It's very difficult to sustain the argument that a man who helps working class people buy homes so that they will have a stake in society and, as he says, be better citizens, is somehow subversive and trying to quietly and effectively insert communist propaganda. Rand's philosophy will eventually find itself coming out of the mouths of everyone from Ronald Reagan, the president, to Tom Mullen, the man you heard a few minutes ago. Why, the American government couldn't have found a more vehement critic of George Bailey had it chosen Henry Potter himself to pick subversives. And the ripple effects will reverberate across your universe's timeline. So the FBI is going to be watching for anything they consider subversive or or pro-communist. So they're collecting information on mostly people's affiliations. And Hollywood is full of labor unions at the time who um, often openly affiliated with communist groups. And there's two names blacked out consistently through the document. So the assumption here is that they have two 
informants who are probably members of the motion picture industry in some way. Ian and do not believe director Frank Capra is a registered communist, but he's known to have associated with left-wing groups. And on one other occasion, he made a picture which was decidedly socialist in nature, entitled Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, starring James Stewart. According to informants, and in this picture, the screen credits, again, fail to reflect the communist support given to the screenwriters. According to the writers, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett were very close to known communists. And on one occasion in the recent past, while these two writers were doing a picture for Metro Goldwyn Mayer, Goodrich and Hackett practically lived with known communists and were observed eating luncheon daily with such communists as and Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Prudential knows that no community is a monolith, and we all have unique financial needs. With black community partners across the nation, Prudential has a remarkable history of supporting communities and institutions that have been overlooked for far too long and are making a tangible impact. This includes their home city of Newark, where they're actively engaged in building stronger financial foundations. They are dedicated to offering equitable financial services that cater to diverse individual requirements while recognizing our shared goal of wealth building. For instance, they've pledged a staggering $1 billion to programs, partners, and initiatives focused on historically excluded communities. It's not just about dreaming anymore. It's about turning those dreams into reality by creating blueprints for generational wealth. Power the dreams of our communities today and future generations tomorrow. Learn more and build your financial blueprint today at prudential.com blueprints. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. 
Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Unable to use the information they've collected on Hollywood for any prosecutions, the FBI instead provides it to a congressional committee. The House Un-American Activities Committee, also known as HUAC, fronted by a junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy. McCarthy is unpopular and looking for a cause to raise his profile when J. Edgar Hoover dumps his files on McCarthy's committee. Armed with Hoover's otherwise taxpayer-wasting, years-long covert collection of information, McCarthy finds a use for it to hurt the reputations and ability to earn a living of those Hoover had chosen to target. Among the many artists whose thriving careers are stopped in their tracks, blacklisted, they call it, from their beloved professions for a time, are too involved with wonderful life. One is Dalton Trumbo, a member of the infamous first group called before HUAC, known as the Hollywood Ten. He had written a never-used first draft of Wonderful Life. Another blacklisted is Michael Wilson, a devout pacifist who contributed to that rant against Potter by George Bailey, the one that got the FBI interested in the first place. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Dorothy Parker, a writer who contributed a few of your favorite quotes in the film, avoids blacklisting by pleading the fifth but sees her reputation suffer. And Clifford Odets, who in a future episode you'll learn provided many of the elements you love from the first act of Wonderful Life, was also called before Huac. Before appearing, he devised a plan with his good friend Elia Kazan, the movie director. Uh, here's Clifford's son uh, talking about Kazan. Uh, he actually went into the Huac thing and he did name people is communist then he and my father after that was over my my father was uh, drawn into it they they sent him a note you have to come in on such and such a data but he so we talked to kazan and what what they agreed upon which was i think good for my father but not understood was kazan said to my father listen i've named these people there are four of them here you can name them again they've already heard it they know it and uh, if you have to name people, just name these because they've already been done. Well, my father was known to have been in the Communist Party for six months. And uh, and if he didn't acknowledge that, um, he would have been jailed. So this was after my mother's death. And my sister and I, were he, he, he was taking care of us. So that's what my father ended up doing. A Wonderful Life is all about heroes and villains. And the Jimmy Stewart uh, character is the consummate triumph of good guy, uh, good woman, good person, America. The, the notion that if you really do right by enough people in your world that someday that will come back and grace you. Larry Ty is a noted newspaper man who took on a new direction when he decided he had to write books about what he saw as some of the greatest heroes and villains in American life. 
For the hero, he chose Superman. We'll get to that in just a bit. For the villain, he chose the man who popularized the attacks that did so much damage to wonderful life writers. I wrote a book called Demagogue that looked at U.S. Senator Joe McCarthy as the archetype of demagoguery in America. Joe McCarthy is, is a little bit of uh, Mr. Potter, it's a little bit of Donald Trump. It is the archetypal um, bad guy or demagogue who understands what gets Americans angry and is willing to stretch the truth as much as it takes to sort of play on all of our worst instincts. And so Joe McCarthy took the very real threat of communism in the 1950s and threw flames, threw fuel on the fire of American fears about communism um, and suggested that behind every pillar in the State Department and behind every important institution in America was a communist spy. And the truth is that Joe McCarthy, um, as his critics at the time said, could have been dropped into the middle of Red Square in Moscow and not recognized a real communist. He was pointing fingers at people who weren't spies. He was raising a specter of a threat that made whatever real threat there was more difficult to contain. And he was willing to do or say absolutely anything to advance his own career. Um, he knew very little about communism. All he knew was that he was a first-term U.S. senator from Wisconsin who was on his way to being kicked out of office, and he was desperate for an issue that would put him on the front pages. And once he found it, which was making unfounded accusations, he kept doing that. He kept ending up on the front page, and it took almost a decade for us to finally repudiate, to realize that he was the charlatan that he was. So I was writing about Joe McCarthy, and I only mentioned Donald Trump in the preface to my book and in the epilogue, but the fact is Donald Trump was there in just about every page because Donald Trump borrowed the Joe McCarthy playbook. And that's not just speculation, but it is that there was a flesh and blood connection, a brilliant, egocentric, um, I think dangerous young lawyer from New York named Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn was Joe McCarthy's protege. Roy Cohn went to work for Joe McCarthy at his Senate committee. He helped him conduct these witch hunts looking for communists in government. Roy Cohn was Joe McCarthy's top aide. He led his most irresponsible investigations. And half a century later, when Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, was looking for the perfect tutor for Donald Trump to help Donald Trump when he was getting into the cutthroat world of New York real estate, Fred Trump hired Roy Cohn to tutor his son, Donald Trump. And there's a reason Joe McCarthy was in the 1950s the second most popular figure in American public life, trailing only the war hero president, Dwight Eisenhower. And the same things that led McCarthy to gain the kind of power and public trust that he did have come back repeatedly in our political life 
to haunt us. I like to think that George Bailey's were involved in helping see through uh, Donald Trump and Joe McCarthy and Mr. Potter and all the villains in American life, and that in the end, it is the George Bailey's and it is the Clark Kent Superman characters who prevail and who really define who we are, even if we sometimes lose sight of that. To best be in a position to use his amazing powers in a never-ending battle for truth and justice, Superman has assumed the disguise of Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. There's nothing that could seem more old-fashioned in our world than George Bailey, but why do we keep tuning back into him? The anti-hero is what we like to toy with and showing that we're more interesting than just old-fashioned Superman, but we keep coming back to the hero. The whole point of the anti-hero is in opposition to something, and the opposition always at some points yields to the basics. In the classic Jimmy Stewart film, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is given a great gift, the chance to see what the world would be like without him. Tonight, Mr. President, we'd like to give you that same gift, because without you, we'd all be living in Pottersville, sold out to a crooked Mr., or I should say, a crooked Mrs. Potter, with no hope of escape except death itself. It's 2020, and we're at a political party convention. Natalie Harp, a recent survivor of bone cancer, is speaking passionately. George Bailey's father was right. All you can take with you is that which you've given away. And Mr. President, that makes you the richest man in the world. For you have used your strength to make America strong again. Sacrifice the life you built to make America proud again. And you risked everything to make America safe again. It's a wonderful life. You made America great again. And on November 3rd, we are going to keep America great. I have been tempted in the past to say mom and dad would never have voted for Trump. They would have been appalled at what's happening to the Republican Party. But I didn't want to do that because they aren't around to say, now, wait a minute, or that, you know, I, it was putting words in their mouth. This is talking about our family. And it's also, I think I speak for a lot of people for whom George Bailey is a beloved character. Kelly Stewart Harcourt and her twin sister are Jimmy Stewart's only biological children. Born five years after the release of Wonderful Life, Jimmy also adopted and raised his wife's two sons. He was a Republican, and in fact a big supporter of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Dad liked him as a person. I mean, Reagan was a nice guy. And in those days, Mom and Dad had friends across the political spectrum. And Reagan would come with Mom and Dad to parties that were full of Democrats. Kelly felt she had to make an exception to the family's decades-long rule about keeping her father's legacy and politics separate in order to respond to Natalie Harp with a letter published in the New York Times. I have it. I have it right here because I always keep it with me. It's my proudest publication. <laughs> in her speech at the GOP convention Monday night, Natalie Harp, a cancer survivor, made reference to the film It's a Wonderful Life. 
comparing Donald Trump to George Bailey, the main character in the film played by my father, Jimmy Stewart. Given that this beloved American classic is about decency, compassion, sacrifice, and a fight against corruption, our family considers Ms. Harp's analogy to be the height of hypocrisy and dishonesty. I heard from people, they said, thank you. It was quite amazing. I think I got more response from that publication than I have from any of the papers I've written about gorillas. Kelly mentions gorillas, by the way, because after her father Jimmy discouraged his family from a Hollywood life, she became an anthropologist who studied gorillas. Actually, she learned a lot about humanity. One of the big things is that we are a super social species. Group living is us. And there's no such thing as a loner, really. That's not a functional human state, really. Kelly also learned a lot from the reaction to her letter. It just shows how George Bailey crosses the aisle. I mean, everybody claims him to be their American. Democrats and Republicans big city, small town. It just made me realize that it's, it's such a human character. It's, such a, it's a movie about humans. And so on the one hand, I was, I was appalled by th that comparison at the convention. On the other hand, it was, in a way, it was kind of moving that everybody, people that I, I really actually quite detest. We're, we're claiming George Bailey. What makes George Bailey heroic is that he, he makes sacrifices. He gives up. He gives up possibilities for himself. He gives up a dream that he had to help other people. That makes him heroic. He saves people. But the other question, what's how do we get back to having proper heroes today? Superman reflects the sense that within all of us, not just that there's a hero, but there's a hero striving to do all the things that Superman was known for, whether it was truth or justice or the best of the American way. Larry Ty again. That's what Superman was all about, and that's what we all ought to aspire to. And I think that is precisely what the two poor Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, named Siegel and Schuster, had in mind when they created this, this character of Superman um, a century ago. Siegel and Schuster created Superman in 1938 the same year Philip Van Doren Stern outlined his short story that led to wonderful life. And like the small-town values that informed George Bailey's childhood, it only made sense that Superman had to be raised in Smallville, Kansas. There's no hero who we've adored for longer than we did Superman, and I thought his life was a way of understanding why America embraces the heroes that we do. I grew up in a house of parents who had um, were first-generation Americans, and they inspired me with a love of reading and with a love of American history, 
trying to understand our own roots in this country and the broader historical context. Sure. I grew up in a city that nobody has ever heard of called Haverhill, Massachusetts, and it was one of the birthplaces of the American Industrial Revolution. Haverhill was also the hometown of Bob Montana, creator of another of the first comic books to garner a wide public appeal, the Archie series. Teenager Archie's popularity in the early 1940s and its small-town setting of Riverdale, based on Haverhill, couldn't help but partially inspire Wonderful Life's approach to Bedford Falls. Uh, here's Larry again, talking about his shared hometown with Archie creator Bob. He um, knew Haverhill really well, and Haverhill High School was the centerpiece of um, his whole enterprise. And the uh, I did see some of that growing up, and I learned more about it later and went back and revisited and tried to understand why Haverhill was an inspiration. And I think that Haverhill was exactly the kind of all-American town that he was describing, but also one that, if you look a little bit beyond the surface, had enormous potential for humor as well as understanding what this country was all about. Of course, even Sweet Archie has gone dark in recent years, reinvented for the hit television series Riverdale. Can I help you? Are you George Augustine? Yes, what can I Fred Andrews. Well, wait, that, that's the man you killed. My father, Fred Andrews. You hit him with your car and you kept driving. You left him there to die, you coward! Son, listen to me. I'm not... No! Shut up! You took away the only man who could call me that. Why did you do it? Huh? Were you on your phone? Were you drunk? What were you doing when you murdered him? Tell me. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Prudential knows that no community is a monolith, and we all have unique financial needs. With black community partners across the nation, Prudential has a remarkable history of supporting communities and institutions that have been overlooked for far too long 
and are making a tangible impact. This includes their home city of Newark, where they're actively engaged in building stronger financial foundations. They are dedicated to offering equitable financial services that cater to diverse individual requirements while recognizing our shared goal of wealth building. For instance, they've pledged a staggering $1 billion to programs, partners, and initiatives focused on historically excluded communities. It's not just about dreaming anymore. It's about turning those dreams into reality by creating blueprints for generational wealth. Power the dreams of our communities today and future generations tomorrow. Learn more and build your financial blueprint today at prudential.com slash blueprints. Hey guys, Rob Parker here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like the rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with the new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a Toyota truck you buy Toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com Toyota, let's go places We are inside a comic book shop in Haverhill. Uh, the owner, Glenn O'Leary, helps patrons check out their items as he and friends debate whether classic American good guy heroes like George Bailey and Archie can survive in today's media world of Walter White's and Tony Sopranos. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? The strong, silent type. That was an American. You were so fucking hateful. If you think about it, there's not really any good guys, bad guys anymore, especially in comics. Like, you have, the, like, Thanos in certain comics, he's actually helping the, the hero. The there's idea so of, like, self-sacrifice and, and eth- you know, ethics well, being your bounds and things feels like it's become quaint. You guys were talking about it before, people rooting for the villains, and, like, I'm 45, and I work with a lot of younger people, and so... Don't nobody actually believes in heroes at this point. They think the concept is naive and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know that's why you've got people think that Batman should kill the Joker, and they can't understand why. Why wouldn't he? There's such a, a cynicism that if you if you believe in heroes, because because ultimately, you know, if someone is held up as a hero, the expectation is then there's a skeleton in the closet somewhere. There's there's a dark secret the rest of the world doesn't see, and they're getting away with something somewhere. Whether it's out of suspicion or or envy to to, to look at that person and say they can't be that good. People at this point want to tear those icons down, and. And it's it's hard to, to look around even in fiction and grasp a real hero. Like you you mentioned Green Lantern, Batman, Superman, they've all had their fall at some point and had to build themselves back up. So I feel like we used to present actual legitimate heroes in movies and media. And more and more, I think, uh, America's become comfortable with the anti-hero. We've gotten so dark that we can't even imagine Superman without him breaking somebody's neck. 
I think the world itself just got darker. Mm. I don't know. I think I think people are more cynical now that the happy ending just it to them now seems campy and corny. I enjoyed that the darker Superman. Killing Zod was was fine. It was just something that had to be done. Just the all-out destruction of the city, though, Superman would have tried to move it from the city. You're right. Uh, there's no way that he should have stayed in the city and destroyed everything fighting. He would have done anything he could to get him out of the city. Hated Man of Steel. General, would you care to step outside? Superman! The 1970s, or maybe it was Superman 2, where Superman flies away during a fight, right? And and the people of Metropolis are like... And Superman was willing to uh, look like kind of a pussy for a second in order to save this, you know, in order to right. draw the bad guys away, to your point. We're in the minority of the of the people now that feel that that was wrong of Superman. A lot of them left, well, wow, did you see that action scene with the, with the three buildings came down? That's, that's what they wanted to see. The writers gave people what they want to see, what would sell a... They just didn't give them Superman. Right, a guy in an S-suit, but wasn't who Superman really is. Right. The way they, they, they put these these murderers and, and just the, the lowest the lowest type of people on, up on a pedestal yeah. is just to me that that's like that's repulsive to me yeah. like that type of behavior that that type of character I want them to fail I want them to get what's what's theirs I want someone to come in and and, and quote unquote save the day you know yeah what do you think is the definition of a hero what do you being guys think being willing to sacrifice yourself for others which is what Superman's supposed to be all right. about Superman without powers would still try to be Superman. Right. He will still do what's, try to do what's right. I think one of the ingredients of a hero is they've got a defined moral compass and it holds Whoa, them back. Was... It's a challenge. You say only kryptonite can beat Superman, but the other thing that can beat him is if you put him in a position uh, where somebody's going to die if he makes a wrong exactly. decision. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that is, com I feel like that's compelling drama. <laughs> you know, Walter White Breaking Bad is, is not a good guy. The show itself doesn't pretend that he is. They don't hold him up. You've said in the past that you see Breaking Bad as an experiment to see if you can take a Mr. Chips teacher kind of character and turn him into Scarface. There, you're watching a man just lose his humanity piece by piece until there's nothing left. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. George Bailey. I admire the fact that he was willing to sacrifice all of his dreams ultimately again and again because he wanted to look out for other people. Absolutely. That, I find that very admirable. It is It is tragic. He, he gives up so much, but he also ends up living a life of significance and purpose just completely different from what he envisioned and that I mean that's the whole point at the end every literally everyone in town shows up to bail him out and he's flabbergasted by it he's shocked because in his mind he's just doing what he has to do he's he's fulfilling his responsibilities to his family to his community and he never really thinks of what he's gaining from that he's always just treading water trying not to go broke and be swallowed by despair but then in the end he gets to see the payoff yeah. that everything he's worked for and and it's also here are all the people that he's helped and whose whose lives have been made better 
by knowing him. Mm. Who wouldn't want to see that at the end of the day? To have it come down to in your most desperate hour, literally everyone you've ever known shows up. And you could point to George Bailey and say, this is a person you might want to be like. And I just, I can't think of a movie in recent years where I would go, that's it right there, that guy. I don't think there's anything that's been out recently that you could you could say that at all. I think maybe Peter Parker, Spider-Man might be a good example. I agree, I agree. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Spider-Man Peter Parker's Aunt May. That keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble and finally allows us to die with pride even though sometimes we have to be steady and and give up the thing we want the most even our dreams i feel like whenever you you have a classic hero now it's corny and so i think the challenge is sort of like how do you present old school ethics and heroism in, in, in today and then make it still feel complex and real and truthful and authentic and not corny. I think the whole concept of hero has changed so much lately. To, to compare something like you know, how you view anything nowadays as hero is completely different. I mean, the police are now demonized. Okay, there might be some bad cops, but that doesn't mean all of them are bad. You know, you still have you still have firemen running into burning buildings to save people. It goes the other way, too. You're not automatically a hero for signing up. And too often we say, oh, this person is a hero because they put on the uniform. Like, from day one, they're instantly a hero for the rest of their life, no matter their actions. But there's also a projection of, of values and who we would like to be and imagine ourselves to be that I think we need to just survive. You know, even George Bailey has the, throughout his life, has this image of who he thinks he should be, and he kind of clings to that to, to keep himself going like, no, I'm that guy. <laughs> Whether or not my life bears it out, he has this person he is in his head uh, that, that kind of keeps him going. On the farm where my parents um, lived. We'll end on David Wilson, an interesting Scott. Here, remembering his first time watching Wonderful Life. And I watched it with them, um, with my sisters, and with a very much a log fire burning in the background. And it was on Christmas Eve. My father cried. And I had never seen my father cry before. Here was my dad doing something that as a Scots Presbyterian, you never ever saw, which was him showing emotion. And I suddenly realized that, you know, beneath this gruff agricultural exterior beat a heart that could be moved by the story on the screen. And I I think the next time I saw it, I actually was a doctoral student in Cambridge. And I think I saw it in the um, common room of graduate students. And it would be at the time at the height of Thatcherism. So Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, famous British prime minister, has a very uh, close relationship with President Reagan. San Jose Mercury News, August 25th, 1985. Reagan acted as informant to the FBI as a budding politician in Hollywood's acting community after World War II. Ronald Reagan served as a confidential informant for the FBI, according to records released by the Bureau. 
The FBI documents obtained by the Mercury News in a Freedom of Information request show that Reagan identified as T-10 kept agents informed about pro-communist influences in the Screen Actors Guild and other Hollywood organizations. The first mention of Reagan in the documents comes on September 17, 1941, when a Washington, D.C.-based FBI agent, whose name was crossed out, wrote a memorandum to Hugh Clay, then the assistant special agent in charge of the Los Angeles Division. I remember watching it at that time through that lens and thinking, hang on a minute, what we're seeing here is actually the antithesis of some of these arguments that have entered into political discourse. Uh, I didn't think I was inventing things that were in the movie that weren't there. And so I started to write about the movie because it then became part of the Christmas ritual of my own family. You might not expect someone so devoted to a movie frequently described as sentimental to make his living as a criminologist. David is among the best regarded in the field, regularly going inside prisons to converse with serial killers. He's come to know real villains. You know, I see so much evil in my professional life, I, I, I regularly have to remind myself that there is also good. I see this as a moral movie. I think this is about the individual's place in a community and what the individual brings to make community, not just take from community, which I would very much see as Potter's role. He simply takes rather than gives. Whereas I saw George Bailey very much as somebody who felt that as an individual, he also not only had to give to his family, but give to the community. You know, uh, we, th this movie wouldn't be the movie it is without George Bailey having the um, having having that final scene, that cathartic final scene where the community comes together. George Bailey has to be put in jeopardy so as to save him. Um, but Potter is quite clearly um, somebody who is narcissistic, who is, as a character, uh, is somebody who clearly um, does not uh, uh, feel uh, the ha feel the pain of others. In fact, revels in the pain of others. There's a sadism there, but there's a lack. The key word or the key phrase would be that um, Porter uh, uh, lacks empathy. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. He can't literally... Um, because he's obviously in a wheelchair, but he, find, he, he, he can't literally walk in George Bailey's shoes and understand the pain that George Bailey and his family would be feeling. In fact, quite the reverse. He's enjoying the pain that Bailey um, was feeling to the extent that he, he, even, that he even says. But I tell you what I'm going to do for you, George, since the uh, state examiner is still here, as a stockholder of the building and loan, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds, manipulation, malfeasance. 
All right, George. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. You know, I'm phoning the bank examiner now. And um, that's uh, that's very much about twisting the knife. You will find a lot of um, functioning psychopaths um, in very senior positions of multinational corporations, banks, um, uh, and so forth. Um, because quite frankly, if you can't walk in another person's shoes, it is quite easy to make decisions um, that you know will create a profit, but fundamentally destroy um, a significant number of your employees. And of course, uh, the relevant phrase to use is that you don't mind making people unemployed on Christmas Eve because you don't care about them. I'm clearly on the side, I want to live in the Bedford Falls. I don't want to live in a Pottersville. George Bailey was never born. Visit SaveGeorgeBailey.com to join the mission. There you'll find links to works by this episode's participants. Learn more about how to celebrate George Bailey Day on Saturday, December 9th, and annually the second Saturday of December hereafter, by hosting your own Wonderful Life viewing party. Tell your friends to listen to this show, subscribe, like, comment, and post about it on social media. Hashtag SaveGeorgeBailey. Subscribe to our Patreon to hear uncut interviews and bonus content. Podcasts also available on YouTube. iHeartMedia presents a double asterisk iHeartMedia co-production in association with True Stories. Created, written, and directed by Joseph, Kurt Angfer, and Rayna Vyshelsky. Kurt Angfer, producer and supervising editor. Rayna Vyshelsky, producer and journalist. Elizabeth Marcus, editor. Roy Sillings, narrator. George Bailey theme song by Carolyn Sills. Buyer albums. Soundtrack composed by Zachary Walter. Buy his albums and the original soundtrack to this podcast available wherever you get your music. Mallory Kinoy, co-producer, writer's assistant, archival producer, and fact checker. John Autry, sound engineer, additional editing, sound design, and mix. Executive producers, Dave Cassidy, Kurt Angfer, Lindsay Hoffman and Bethann Macaluso for iHeartMedia, John Duffy for Double Asterisk, Ruth Vaca for True Stories, Reyna Vyshelsky for Double Asterisk and True Stories. Elizabeth Hankuch, Associate Producer. Brandon Lavoie and Ryan Pennington, Consulting Producers. Keith Sklar, Contract Legal. Peter Yazi, Copyright and Fair Use Legal. Maddie Akers, Archival Specialist. Ron Kadish and Benji Michaels, Publicists. Kavya Santhanam and Marley Weaver, Marketing and Promotions. Art and Web Design by Aaron Kim. Interns were Kyra Gray, Emma Ramirez, Eva Stewart, and Taya Wilson. Podcast license for Philip Van Doren Stern's The Greatest Gift provided by The Greatest Gift Corporation. Their attorney is Kevin Koloff. Recorded at David Weber's Airtime Studios in Bloomington, Indiana. This episode featured, in chronological order, Dom Nero, Wendell Jameson, John Flynn, Gary Camilla, Tom Mullen, John Noakes, Walt Whitman Odets, Larry Ty, Natalie Harp, Kelly Stewart Harcourt, Glenn O'Leary, Michael Buffy Beaton, Jeff Quagenti, Corey Turner, and David Wilson. Featuring Kate Monroe and the cast of Wonderful Life and the brief voices, music, and artistry of a who's who of Hollywood and the news media via clips used under the still-existing legal doctrine of fair use. The Potters are working on that one, though. Some original reporting by Wendell Jameson for this episode. 
The voice of Richard Hood, the FBI special agent, was performed by former FBI agent Mark Rossini, based on government memos written by Richard Hood. The voice of a news article that first revealed Reagan as an FBI informant in Hollywood was performed by Matthew Reardon, voicing an original article written by Scott Herhold for the San Jose Mercury News. If you're in Haverhill, Massachusetts, stop by the Comic Book Palace. Go to doubleasteriskmedia.com to hear our other limited-run podcasts, Who is Rich Blee? After the Uprising, with a bold new season in St. Louis coming summer 2024, and Origins, Birth of a Pandemic. And subscribe to True Stories New Weekly, Everybody Has a Podcast, with Ruth and Ray. If you are feeling like you're on the bridge, please call the AFSP's Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 into your phone, or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting 741-741. Consider donating to or volunteering with AFSP or your local Habitat for Humanity, and make George Bailey proud. We're not affiliated with them, though. Copyright 2023, Double Asterisk, Inc. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.